This is a moral call right here. This is not about politics. This is about morality. Health emergencies can't wait for us to have some theoretical debate about some better idea that will never, ever come to pass. We are behind every country pretty nearly in Europe in this matter of medical care for our citizens. I'm a physician. That means you have a right to come to my house and conscript me. It means you believe in slavery. Welcome, everyone. My name is Benjamin Day. And I am Jillian Mason. And this is Medicare for All, the podcast for everybody who needs health care. I, I see I set people back with my enthusiastic introduction this time. You really caught me off guard. Yeah, yeah. I feel very welcomed. <laughs> Stephanie's here, right? <laughs> exactly. And because today our topic is keep your hands off our fucking bodies. So obviously the recent leak of what is likely to be the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade has us like totally uh, enraged about the future of abortion and healthcare access in America. Spoiler alert, we are not loving the fact that five fucking reactionary clowns can take away the bodily autonomy of like half the population in the US. So today we're making the case for why abortion access and you know more broadly reproductive justice um, must be part of the Medicare for All movement and why Winning Medicare for All is actually a really important part of winning re reproductive justice in this country. And to, as we have already alluded to, our guest for this episode is Stephanie Nakajima, Executive Director of MassCare, the Massachusetts Campaign for Single-Payer Healthcare. But most importantly, she is the former Director of Communications for Healthcare Now and the former co-host of this podcast, so I basically am just spending my entire life trying to fill your shoes. How do you the feel? OG. <laughs> I knew that one time when I was like gone in Denmark and Jillian filled in for me. I was like, that bitch coming for my job. <laughs> <laughs> and she took and it. Snatched it. <laughs> an amazing job. But yeah, I mean, I thought y'all had had enough of me, but you're back for more. So. Indeed, indeed. We definitely wanted to talk to you because you have been so vocal in our movement about this issue. Yep. It's um, it's something I think that wasn't really talked about that much in the Medicare for All movement until more recently. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. Sadly. Yeah. And we're going to get to that too, some, some movement accountability stuff. Why don't we just start with kind of reactions to this just unbelievable Supreme Court ruling likely to happen. Uh, Jillian, do you want to start? Yeah, I'm fucking pissed off. I mean, uh, like, what, what else, right? Like, I'm, I'm furious. I'm enraged. I feel like fire might come out of my mouth at some point. You know, it's just, uh, it's really devastating to learn just how little you matter to people in this country. And, you know, of course, they're, they're telling us in different ways every day how little we matter when they won't pay us right, or when we don't get equal access to health care, or all these other things. But this is a really, really blatant way of saying women just and other folks with uteruses just don't fucking matter in this country. And that's, that's really my reaction. Yeah. Stephanie, how did that hit you when you heard? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I just think it's incomprehensible that this is the direction we're going in. You know, we are Medicare for all activists, we're trying to expand it, and they're doing their damnedest to make sure 
that we never, we don't keep like, you know, moving the bar. And I mean, countries like Ireland, which has somewhat recently expanded through their universal healthcare system, the right to abortion, which is actually just what happens when you have like public control of a healthcare system, it does tend to get better actually, right? And Cyprus is doing this right now as well. And we're just, because we don't have this collective engagement with our healthcare system, collective ownership of our healthcare system, it can continue to be sliced and diced. And until we get that, Medicare for all system, we're going to see, I think, this continue to happen. So Yeah, totally. And, you know, one of the things that really pisses me off is that people make it seem, if you were to listen to your average right winger, they make it seem like it's super easy to get an abortion in this country right yeah. now. Right? right? <laughs> like, like they make it seem like they haven't already gamed the system against women, right? But of course, we know about the Hyde Amendment. And Stephanie, I know y'all were really active in that fight. Do you want to tell people about it? You have to fight through the hordes of protesters to get into the unmarked clinic. Oh, <laughs> God, the yeah. abortion experience ever, you know. So tell people about the Hyde Amendment, though, Ben. Describe the Hyde Amendment, because I know y'all were involved with that fight. When you think about our healthcare system, we're obviously a total outlier in the developed world. But it turns out we're a total outlier in a lot of things, including abortion access. So ever since 1976, so that timing tells you that this came right after the Roe v. Wade decision. It was a reaction from Congress. Every year, Congress passes what's called the Hyde Amendment, which blocks federal funds from being used for abortion services. It's not a law. It's not like a law of the land that sits on the books. They have to pass it every single budget cycle over and over and over again. And they have been every single year since the 1970s, which is just extraordinary. And that that obviously means that because of our fucked up healthcare system, where the most vulnerable groups in the country have public federally funded health care, that's seniors, obviously people with disabilities and then low income people who are on Medicaid. That means that all the most vulnerable communities in the country have their access to abortion services dramatically reduced. So there's just also these massive, massive inequities in our system. And that does not even get into the extra shit that state Republican states have been pulling, yeah. uh, going over and above, or I guess below would be the better term, what the federal government does in, in these Hyde Amendment restrictions. New Texan here, very upset about that part. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I mean... Texas has been almost like leading the way with this stuff. I mean, there's obviously been kind of a, well, we can't overturn Roe v. Wade, so we're going to try to make it impossible for people to get abortions by making it almost impossible for providers to meet all the requirements that they have to to, to provide abortion services. So we know that's been disappearing. Uh, there's 10 states in the United States that don't allow private insurance to cover abortion services. Thank you very much, Missouri, Nebraska, Kansas, Oklahoma, North Dakota, Idaho, Utah, Indiana, Kentucky, and Michigan. There's some real market-based freedom for you. Even your private commercially purchased insurance is not allowed to provide you this, this service. So that's how fucked up things are right now in the United States, even before we get to this likely to happen overturning of Roe v. Wade, which is just gonna be a nail in the coffin that's already being built for reproductive rights in, in America. Good times, good times. Mm -hmm. Welcome to the dystopian future. Yeah. So uh, on that note of dystopia, Stephanie, you've been like, I think you've been probably the leading voice in our movement on how important it is that the single payer movement really embrace and lead on reproductive health. But what, what has made you so like personally passionate about this issue and wanted to take a leadership role in this? Yeah, well, I mean, besides the strategic point that we're not going to win Medicare for all without abortion for all, um, right. which we'll probably go into a little bit later. <laughs> but 
first, you know, made me such a strong advocate of having, being loud and proud about abortion in Medicare for all, is that I'm one of the 20% of women that you know who have had an abortion. You know, about 10 years ago, I I was newly married, and at the time, neither I nor my husband was insured, actually, at the time, and I was also unemployed. <laughs> so it did seem like a pretty Perfect bad time, time for, for me to be <laughs> additional people to our home. <laughs> but at the same time, it still didn't really feel like a decision I could make. Um, I think the compounding factors of being uninsured, unemployed, made that less of just a decision and more of like, okay, well, this needs to happen. <laughs> I can't, I'm, I am getting an abortion, right? And of course, just doing that, just getting the abortion was an obstacle of being uninsured. Um, and I was really lucky to only pay $600 at this safety net clinic in Brookline that serves mostly, so Brookline just sort of Boston, you know, that's a whole Boston people problem that Brookline's awesome, but it's essentially Boston that serves mostly uh, uninsured and sort of poorly insured women. Um, you know, if you get an abortion at a hospital in, in Massachusetts, you know, and you're paying out of pocket for any reason, the prices are much higher into the thousands. And so, and this is the third busiest abortion provider in the state that mm, tells you something mm -hmm. about for yeah. this kind of service. They either have inadequate abortion coverage or just inadequate coverage. So. And that's in Massachusetts, right? I mean, allegedly, yeah, ale yeah, allegedly <laughs> the progressive leader and supporter, and supportive of this, yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you for sharing that, Stephanie. I really, I really admire just how, how like how willing you are to talk about that story because really there shouldn't be a stigma attached to it, but we know that in our culture there still is sometimes. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think that the first time I talked about having an abortion, I sort of had to call my family and be like, so I'm about yeah. to like publish an article about how I had an abortion. Right. And like, you know, <laughs> aunt and uncle, whoever are going to see this and mm -hmm. your friends who, you know, have been trying to have a baby or whatever are going to see this. And like, all. I mean, it's just, you know, the first time you do it, you're like, ah, it's going to rock the boat a little bit just in terms of my personal network. But other than, after that, it's like, oh, yeah, I'm like abortion lady. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> we left that out of your intro, your CV. Mm -hmm. um, I know. That abortion been. lady. <laughs> Executive director and abortion lady. Um, <laughs> so one of the things that I think is really interesting that you sort of uh, talked about in terms of like reframing the way that we think about abortion is getting away from the language of choice and getting towards a, relation, a language of reproductive freedom. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what the distinction there is and, and why it's important. Yeah, um, I think that's a really important issue that Medicare for All actually really addresses, right? So choice is about whether or not we force people to give birth. Do you have a legal right to solicit, solicit abortion service, services? Um, not even to have necessarily abortion service because there's no public funding for it, so it's not really a right to have one, but you have a right to solicit an abortion service. That's what choice is. Or you're forced to give birth if you become pregnant, right? <laughs> uh, something I thought we would all have agreed on by now, but apparently not. No, no, still up for debate. <laughs> Whereas reproductive freedom is much broader than that. It's the right to have an abortion, not just access to a thousand dollar abortion if you don't have insurance coverage, but the right an abortion, right, that, to a publicly funded abortion when you need one. And it's also the right to have children, if and when you choose to do that. 
it's the supports and services that we need to raise children. You know, I needed healthcare from cradle to grave uninterrupted if I was going to be, if I was going to be a a parent and, you know, for both mom and the child, you're going to need health insurance for both mom. Um, the right not to live in poverty, the right to healthcare, all the things that go into raising the next generation, right? This is a little bit separate of an issue, but I saw a, a study that showed that becoming a parent makes people in the U.S. more miserable, whereas becoming a parent in Denmark actually makes people happier on average. And I think that is amazing. Yeah. right. right. <laughs> um, and I think when I think about even my own obstacles, I have a job, I have insurance now. But when I think about childcare, there is none, no public childcare. <laughs> right. And I would, um, you know, it wouldn't really make sense for me to continue working at the job that I have now that's not paid very well, if I wanted to both have a child and have because childcare is actually more than the cost, more than I'm making in wages. So is it really a choice <laughs> in this society either? So yeah, mm-hmm. so that's reproductive freedom. In that's a, a clear path to misery. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And we want to give a shout out, you know, I, I, I put in the chat section, at least if you're on YouTube or Facebook, Healthcare Now's statement on reproductive uh, justice and reproductive freedom. And this was really a framework that came out of communities of color and Native American women's organizations who were like, well, you know, yes, we're fighting for choice, but the legal right to have an abortion does not necessarily mean you actually get choice. So this is just a broader, uh, more inclusive uh, framing. So I think that's a great background for folks in a, about this discussion. Shifting to, obviously, switching to a Medicare for All system would have a profound impact on reproductive freedom and reproductive justice. It, it wouldn't solve everything, obviously. And if it was, if it's designed poorly, it could have a profound impact in a bad way. We could envision that as well. And as much as I hate to admit it, the Medicare for All movement has not always had a great track record in supporting reproductive care. And I know even over your time at Healthcare Now and now at Mass Care, this has been changing, probably not as fast as we like. But you know, what have you seen in terms of changes in the Medicare for All movement, in terms of its commitment to reproductive justice, and you know, how much further do we have to go? Yeah, so when we started talking about really coming out and standing in solidarity with abortion, uh, the right to have an abortion, the right to have a publicly funded abortion, I did notice, uh, and this isn't necessarily something, I don't want to like characterize the movement as this, but we did have some that feel abortion is somehow a separate third rail issue that's just right. like different totally. from Medicare for all. It's not a fight we have to take. We don't have to let abortion take down the cause of Medicare for all. We can win Medicare for all and then we can do abortion. And that's all not going to happen. Like that's <laughs> if you think out like how we're going to get to a public healthcare system where all insurance companies and everything they covered is gone and then only Medicare for all exists, you're either going to have abortion or you're not going to have abortion. (laughs) And there is no one who's going to say, yeah, let's have a Medicare for all system that doesn't cover abortion where no one can get an abortion. Right. So you you fight for one, you fight for the other. And that's what I think is the beauty of the Medicare for all system, which is that you fight for everything together. You're all in it together. And it's just like the ultimate in solidarity. Right. And that's all not going to start happening until we start normalizing publicly funded abortion now. 
and saying that this is actually something we have a right to, just like you have a right to every other kind of healthcare, you have a right to an abortion because it is healthcare. And actually every other country that has a single payer system also has abortion, including Catholic countries like Italy and Ireland. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and so I think younger people who are entering the movement and have also have always felt like abortion is something that, you know, really, really matters to them and isn't going to be a wedge issue or whatever. I think I see, you know, more solidarity among like new generations of Medicare for all activists and older ones who are more cautious, but also because they had to pave the way for the next generation to have a stronger sense of our rights. Naturally, I think that that's just how it is. And, but I, I also think that it's changing a lot to there as well. So, yeah. And honestly, I think the, the more that these attacks on abortion access succeed, uh, honestly, the, the the more the case that Medicare for all is a way for us to actually win this decisively is is emerging. Um, but you know, having having worked in this movement for fifteen years, I don't think there was any real institutional support for reproductive freedom in the Medicare for all. Well, I won't say in the Medicare for all movement, but at least at the top, um, at the legislative level until more recently. When Bernie Sanders first introduced his Medicare for all act of 2017, that was the first Medicare for all bill in Congress that explicitly addressed abortion access. And the way that they designed it, you know, you can't just repeal the Hyde Amendment in a law because obviously they pass it again every year. So you can repeal it and it'll just be back again the next year. So the way that Bernie Sanders' bill deals with it is that it shelters the Medicare for all funding system from the Hyde Amendment and similar amendments that are passed every year in the budgeting process. So it's kind of a clever but effective way of making sure that reproductive health care is actually fully covered by the Medicare for all system. But again, not until 2017, we didn't even have a bill in Congress that cared about reproductive access to reproductive care. And then only when Pramila Jayapal took on the bill in the House and she rewrote it all in 2019, did the House bill follow suit. So that's all pretty recent. You know, that's not that long ago. This is just we're talking about a few years ago. And that's not even to mention the Colorado ballot initiative back in 2016, which I, I think you, you were also on staff at Healthcare Now at that time, right? I wasn't around for that one. You guys have to explain it. All right. <laughs> yeah, I, I believe that the bill, is this correct, Ben, that the Colorado bill that was put forward to be voted on uh, by a, a ba- on the ballot did not cover abortion. Yeah, it was Colorado has basically their own Hyde Amendment at the state level. So they have a, a constitutional amendment that bans state public funds from going towards towards abortion services. And that's and so they, you know, they put this question on the ballot to create a Medicare for all system in Colorado, but they didn't address anything with abortion services. So it would have been the same as these national bills where if you pass it, everyone, you know, obviously you're not going to have private health insurance anymore. Everyone is going to have access to public insurance, but it's none of it's going to cover abortion. So that means everyone who currently has abortion access through their employer-based plan would lose it in Colorado, which is actually catastrophic for access to abortion services. So this is the danger of Medicare for All if you don't address this, is that you can re- you could set back the movement even further than the Supreme Court is doing right now, right? <clears throat> yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. And that was basically the death of the Colorado ballot initiative. NARAL pro-choice came out against the the ballot, the Medicare for all ballot initiative. Planned Parenthood came out against it. And very rapidly after that, the entire Democratic establishment lined up against it. And the Medicare for all activists, many of whom we love and are friends and are doing great work, you know, they got trapped in a box because they were like, well, now we have to defend this thing that could be really bad. And so they started trying to spin their wheels, but it, it didn't work. They They lost by... I think it was almost 80% to 20% vote. So turns out that abortion is, you know, that's the thing. <laughs> abortion is always more popular than they think. Uh, <laughs> that's true. Yes. <laughs> I mean, the majority yeah. of women support, you know, access to abortion. Mm-hmm. The majority of Catholic women support access to abortion. We may not talk about it every day, but unless you're Stephanie, but <laughs> <laughs> Okay, I talk about it every day too. Uh, <laughs> but we may not talk about it every day, but the truth is is that the majority of people really, really cherish that access to abortion. Yeah, we have really let like a very vocal minority sort of prevent us from being having the courage of our convictions. <laughs> yeah. 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 Most people do support abortion and it's not a bad word and it's not shameful. And I think it also, it does sort of speak to the internalized shame that I think a little people do have about abortion generally, which is also, I think, contributing to why, even though polling shows, yes, majority of people in this country support Medicare for all, there's so much hesitation about getting getting in there. Yeah, even among I, Democrats. And I, I think there's there's almost no Democrats left, at least in the House, who are yep. pro-life. I mean, I, I think there was one vote that went the other way. And this is actually a Texas rep who's being challenged by a progressive tomorrow. now. Yes. We'll find out tomorrow. <laughs> right. right. Yeah. I can't wait yes. for that that primary yeah. to sweep that douchebag out of office. But Thank there's almost there's almost no support left in Congress among the Democratic Party for pro-life stances. And yet Democrats are so timid. They think that this is a losing issue. They don't want to run on it. And it's really shameful. So we, we can't follow their lead because it, it is going to hurt the Medicare for all movement. The the burying your head in the sand tactic has been tried. Yeah. And it was a total epic disaster, as we saw in Colorado. <laughs> but you were saying something, Jillian. Sorry, I interrupted you. Oh, I was just going to say, like, I always think about conversation I had with my mother when I was a child. I grew up very Catholic. My, my family is very Catholic. Mm-hmm. And again, very Catholic. And so, you know, we would go to a CCD class. That's where they give you the religious education, like once once a week after school or whatever. Mm-hmm. And so we would go to CCD class and we would get these like anti-abortion talks, right? Mm-hmm. And I don't think that I was like, I don't think I was internalizing too much of that, but they would also give us these little embroidered stickers that were these pretty red roses And I thought these stickers were the most beautiful things I had ever seen. And so I'm like wearing it all on my clothes or whatever. And I can remember my mom being like, listen, that's not really our thing, Jillian. (laughs) (laughs) And she told me that there always has to be an option if something terrible happens, there has to be an option for women. So, I mean, it's like, I grew up in a really strict Catholic household, but definitely still, yeah, still, you know, in private, we definitely had a different message about abortion. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I don't think in terms of lived experience, I mean, there's no evidence that like Catholic women are not using abortion services or Catholic families as well. So it's important for all of us. Yeah, um, exactly. precisely. 
Yeah. So, okay. So we, we uh, sort of dunked on our own movement a little bit for being, <laughs> for being so tone deaf on the issue of reproductive freedom, but let's talk a little bit about the reproductive rights movement, which hasn't always been on the side of single payer either. Right. So Stephanie, what's the deal with that? Yeah. Explain what is make it sense? What is the deal with that other than just these absolute invertebrates have just such a narrow idea of what choice is like we were talking about and Mm -hmm. don't want to piss off anybody slightly to the left or right of them. Right. They're just like, you know, I I think that with Planned Parenthood and with the Colorado situation, well, we just like handed it to them on a silver platter because we didn't have abortion in the bill. Mm -hmm. And so they could be like, you know, goodbye. Then we learned our lesson, California, you know, with California's bill, we did have abortion in the bill. And so, but Planned Parenthood did decide still to come out against that bill. And at that point, there was nowhere they could hide, except that they have basically a really good relationship with all of their legislators because that they rely on, right, for access to get their bills brought forward or whatever. And they do buy a, you know, an access politics kind of strategy where, you know, you're being, you're on friendly terms. You don't want to push your legislators too hard and you you don't necessarily want to stand up for your rights when, you know, that's when that option comes to you. Right. So, but it it did actually make them look kind of bad that uh, an organization that's trying to fight for increased healthcare access you know, was against Medicare for all. And Planned Parenthood has always been like kind of shit. (laughs) You know, they they did also for many years, they did not weigh in on the Hyde Amendment. And in fact, they really capitulated to the logic of, oh, we don't, we don't like push for a publicly funded abortions. We are only, yeah, yeah, whatever. And so that just further entrenched this, you know, really poisonous idea that abortion shouldn't be publicly funded. Um, and that's Planned Parenthood's fault, right? That's partly Planned Parenthood's fault for taking that. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah it's interesting because like really when you put it that way, it's really, uh, it's kind of the two sides are really a mirror image of each other, right? It's fear on both sides that we're already pushing an idea that's something that's marginal. And so we better not push it over the line by including, mm-hmm. you know, abortion or by including single payer health care or, you know, whatever, which is a general problem of the left in America, right? We're all too afraid to take that extra step and speak the truth about what we're really for or against, you know? Yeah. And meanwhile, while we have been afraid of pushing that, the right hasn't been afraid at all of going to the other extreme yeah. and making it illegal at six weeks, making it illegal, period. <laughs> and no so period. we've been paying for that. Yeah. The notion that you that we're just going to fight to make sure it's legal to get an abortion, but we're not we don't care about your ability to afford it or to have insurance cover it. That's like, you know, if we were to fight to the legal right to get access to a hospital or something, you know, which right. uh, our country right. actually did have to do, you know, with Jim Crow laws. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, mm-hmm. and we still sometimes, you know, rural access, things like that. But, you know, we, we know that obviously you can have a legal right to buy a, a commodity uh, and it can be completely out of your reach, either because the providers have been driven out of the state or because you don't have insurance that covers it or you have in- insurance, but there's a massive deductible or co-payment mm-hmm. that's out of your reach anyway. So, yeah, Stephanie wrote a great article in, in Salon a couple of years back uh, called Planned Parenthood. It's time to get behind single payer. I love that you called them out. But we obviously have our own. You know, we know that that was also the year 
where the first time ever the House bill covered abortion services. So I think kind of like with, you know, there's been a similar relationship with the disability activist community where the Medicare for All bill has been kind of shit on long-term long-term care and long-term services. And there's been a distance between the Medicare for All movement and the, the disability rights movement, which is partially our fault. I think we we can we should take some blame as well for the distance between us and and some of the reproductive justice movement. Oh, absolutely, um, yeah. But not all of it, because some of these centrist groups, as as Stephanie was saying, have really been strategic about never supporting public uh, financing of, of abortion services, which is it's it's almost unthinkable to me that these leading organizations on abortion access aren't willing to support public financing of it and just making it a right, you know? And what's even crazier about that is how much it actually works against their own cause. So mm -hmm. this, this clinic that I was saying I had an abortion at, so they are a clinic that serves primarily, as I was saying, low income women who don't have access to abortion through it for whatever reason. And so they are being, you know, they're allowed to pay sort of like a very subsidized or like low rate. And that has put this clinic, which serves so many, gives so many women abortions, provides so many women every year, that this clinic is on the verge of bankruptcy and had to do a GoFundMe <laughs> to stay open. And the reason that we have that is because we have a for-profit healthcare system that rewards profitable forms of care, encourages hospital chains and providers to, to do more and more profitable stuff and less and less of the stuff that actually serves the community, mm -hmm. um, what the community needs. And so by defending the current for-profit healthcare system and the current revenue streams that are dictated by profit rather than need, we're just getting ourselves into a situation where we may not have an abortion clinic that serves low-income people in the Boston area at some point. Yeah. And, you know, we met in Massachusetts, we we're like, really, oh, yeah, you know, like, we're going to bring in people from Mississippi and like, you know, export doctors and all that shit. And like, feel so happy about ourselves for doing that. Mm -hmm. But if you're if an abortion clinic closes in Mississippi because a legislator legislated it or if an abortion clinic closes in Massachusetts because it couldn't pay its bills, the outcome is the same. Right. Mm. So, you know, say that louder for the people in the back. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so these are policy choices that they are reinforcing and making. Yeah. Massachusetts is what the only legal right to abortion looks like without yeah. giving a shit about everything else, having a, a working provider network and being able to afford it. And let's be real, what does that mean? That means that middle-class white women, women can access abortions. Right. Yeah. And that's that's not helpful. That's not, that's not enough? <laughs> <laughs> that's not a vibe, goddamn. <laughs> All right, so why don't, we have one last question to talk about, which is we've been kind of skirting around this, but Stephanie, I wanna ask you, just straight up, is abortion access a form of healthcare? And, you know, based on that, what are the kind of implications for the Medicare for All movement's relationship to the kind of parallel movement for reproductive justice? Ooh, big questions. First one's easy. Uh, <laughs> so is abortion access a form of health care? So right, just like we talk about with dental care has somehow been like removed from, right. you know, like the teeth aren't really part of the body or something. I don't know. There's, you know, there's also this, you know, is the uterus separate from uh -huh. the body? Really, it's not. Um, and it's not. <laughs> 
<laughs> really located right in the core. Um, <laughs> I'd like to and, say how grateful I am that all of my organs have been included in healthcare coverage. <laughs> it's a <laughs> it's a point of privilege. Um, it is nice. yeah, right. <laughs> Little humble brag you got in there, Ben. Yeah, about yeah. Flex, but okay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Stephanie. I totally interrupted you. Um, you were no, and you know, pregnancy is absolutely automatically. It's one of the most dangerous things that can happen to a person today. Mm -hmm. You know, now that yes. we've eliminated a lot of other dangers like snakes or whatever. And it absolutely requires that you have access to healthcare to go through it, first of all. <laughs> you know, it's what makes forced birth in a country that refuses to pass universal health care even more barbaric than it already is and already would be no matter what, right? So yeah, abortion is absolutely a form of health care. And we just did an episode a few weeks ago on maternal, uh, maternal health care and how shit it is and how extraordinarily high our maternal mortality rates are. So, you know, what you what you talked about, I think forced birth, being forced to give birth was the, the perfect description of what this ruling implies. Yeah, I, I just want to give a shout out real quick mm -hmm. to the uh, Advanced New Standards and Reproductive Health Institute at the University of, of California, San Francisco. So they just did this recent, uh, this turnaway study, which was a long term study that basically mm -hmm. really demonstrated a lot of these points. But, you know, namely, one of the things they pointed out, right, is that giving birth is connected to more serious health problems than having an abortion. And death. I mean, increased mm -hmm. chance of death. It's really yeah, dangerous. Yeah, yeah. And I, so I want to, I wanted a quote from, um, we have this quote from Justice Anthony Kennedy in the Supreme Court. He says, and this is, you know, this is a hundred percent bullshit. So try to, try to keep yourself together as I get through this awful quote. He mm -hmm. says, um, while, while we find no reliable data to measure the phenomenon, uh, which is not true, it seems unexceptionable, unexceptionable to conclude, some women come to regret their choice to abort the infant life they once created and sustained. Severe depression and loss of esteem can follow. So, you know, lacking any data, Justice Kennedy has decided to describe how women feel after having an abortion. And one of the findings of this of this turnaway study that you were talking about, Jillian, is that that is 100% bullshit. And it actually turns out we have studied this. 95% uh, of women who received an abortion said that they made the right decision. Um, and his claim that you have mental health issues from having an abortion, it's actually the exact opposite. Women who are turned away from having abortions are have much, much higher uh, elevated mental health issues, self-esteem issues, anxiety, and also physical health issues. Yep, that's a new level of mansplaining. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, what is Justice Kennedy or Ben explaining that article? <laughs> it was a meta commentary. Yeah, right. <laughs> it works in so many situations. <laughs> Since no one really knows what women think. Tell us about it. I think it's not, you know, <laughs> um, I think it's uncontroversial for me to tell women how they think. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure. Cool. So, cool, cool, cool. Stephanie, you were starting to get into the tougher question about the intersectionality of reproductive justice movement and Medicare for all movement. Yeah. But just one other thought I had about that mm. is just, you know, we talk also when we did the long, st uh, what, which, what study was it that did that where we, they looked at 
the health outcomes of people in the NHS or like in some British mm. bureaucracy over a long period of time and found that like actually your status level determines like how long you live. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, that was the, the Whitehall study. Yeah. The Whitehall study. Studies, yeah. Just the lack of, you know, being turned away for an abortion and just lacking that bodily autonomy is just such an extreme version of like that kind of sort of like weird hierarchical thing where we like make women go through something, you know, <laughs> completely against their will and, and force them to live with that is just such a, an, it really does, it really is a, a bodily autonomy issue. And it's, it's just this whole story, this whole episode has been so depressing. <laughs> <laughs> For those of you who are listening to the audio version of this, Stephanie is literally tearing her hair out. <laughs> <laughs> I am biting my lip to keep from screaming obscenities. <laughs> yeah, even better was, he got to explain how women feel. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Coolly and passionately. <laughs> yeah, so the second question about the implications of the Medicare for All movement's relationship to the movement for reproductive justice. I mean, I think we've done a little bit of criticism about like where we came from little bit of optimism about turning that ship around and going in the right direction, you know, unapologetically standing for Medicare for, for abortion rights and publicly funded abortion within Medicare for all solidarity just with movements, you know, not just for like abortion access, but publicly funded abortion access. So like yeah. there's an organization, I think it's called um, all above all and it, and it fights for ending Hyde. And that's actually picked up a lot of steam and actually influenced Planned Parenthood's decision to also come out for ending Hyde. And I think those are things that we need to, you know, bump in every way that we can. And, you know, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I also just want to give a shout out to the women, by the way, who continue to find ways to work around all these legal restrictions on abortion, right? They shouldn't have to, but I do think that it says something about women and people with uteruses in general who have been marginalized in our society that we've found ways to survive. And I think that that's part of the optimism here is that we know we know we found ways to survive in the past and that we will continue to. But and I yeah. actually think that looking at other movements in other countries, so what was the that ship, the abortion ship in Ireland? I think it was mm -hmm, women mm -hmm. on waves. Right, mm -hmm, right, right. Off, you know, in EU waters or whatever and <laughs> allowed women to board who needed abortions. And that became, you know, that helped to set off a political discussion about why that was necessary in Ireland mm -hmm. <laughs> and whether, like, reevaluating, you know, what we are doing what Irish people are doing to, you know, their people. So I think the more that we resist and the more that we fail to acknowledge like the normalcy of like, you know, what we have, what has been normalized for so long is, is also going to help the, the right. resistance. Yeah. And I think that our version of the ship is like, Amazon and some other large employers have said they would pay for their employees if they needed to transport them to another mm -hmm. state to get abortion services or um, transgender care. Mm -hmm. um, I hate to give any credit to Amazon for anything, sure. um, but <laughs> damn it, they got me there. Um, but yeah, and, and I mean, that's like, but I mean, when it comes to that, when it, when you have to rely on the, you know, the largesse of your shitty employer, who's trying to mostly exploit you for your labor, you're, we're in, we're in really bad shape in this country. I, I had initially thought, I was certain that if Roe v. Wade was overturned, 
there would be a revolution in the United States. And I'm not sure if that's going to happen, but I hope it does. And I, one of my messages for like the Medicare for all movement is we've got to be here for this. Like the uprising yeah. that's happening right now, it's time to like get out there both informally, just as individuals, but also as organizations, we've got to sign on to these, these actions and just kind of take part in them and not be like, oh, we can't just defend what we have. We have to, you know, we got to do both. We have to defend what we have at the same time. We're fighting for a publicly funded abortion health care. So get out yeah. there in the streets, folks, because action is, is happening everywhere. So and it will happen even more when we get the formal Supreme Court ruling. Yep. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. yeah, that's something we haven't actually talked about is that the Supreme Court ruling has not actually come down yet. So mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. they've got a chance to rewrite it. <laughs> Fingers crossed. Maybe this episode will end up being irrelevant. In a <laughs> we can only but I'm not holding my breath. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, thank you. It's so good to have you back, Stephanie. Uh, I yeah, will have you back. Nice. We'll have you back for a better topic next time. I promise that is not yes, as gut-wrenching and depressing. Um, but I also like, right before we win Medicare for all and be like, guys, we did this. Oh, fuck. Yeah, wow. we will. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want to have been on the podcast that. to discuss something painful and shitty. It's right. going to get brought back on the podcast to discuss something happy. That's we your reward. <laughs> and I also want to thank our podcast team without whom we could not do this whole thing. Our podcast manager is Angelique Davis. Our researcher for, for this episode was Lindsay Bache. Our show notes writer is Jerry Katz. And our audio editor was Arena Budanova. So thanks to all those folks. Thanks to all of you. And we will talk to you in two weeks. Bye. Stay safe. Stay dangerous. <laughs>